What's up, guys? It's the phenomenal AJ Styles. You're listening to the two-man power trip. Oh, my God. This is Joey Styles, and you're listening to the two-man power trip podcast. This is Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. This is Cody Rhodes, the prince of pro wrestling, and you are listening to two-man power trip. This is Jimmy Vine, the boogie Wooker man. Tell my people and my brothers and sisters, don't you dare miss John and Chad. Hey, everybody out there. This is the franchise Shane Douglas. Remember me? <laughs> well, guys, it's great to be on the show again. I appreciate you asking me back. So you said you were going to pinch yourself. I didn't know it was that kind of show now. I mean, if you guys are in the privacy of your own home, if you want to do these things. Good. How you doing, Chad? Hey, Johnny. Cool, man. What's going on? We ready to go or what? Okay. Hey, man. What's up, guys? This is Homicide. Oh, that's my homie. Homicide with a big homie club. Yeah, that would be it. Hey, this is David Penzer, and this is the two-man power trip of wrestling. Well, thank you, thank you. Hear me, fear me. I don't do many wrestling shows anymore, probably because I'm a bit ignorant. You guys probably know ten times more than I do. Look, Mean Gene, I can't be beat. I'm the greatest of all time. And I would say that. And every kid, I, they knew they could kick the out of me. Great talking to you guys. It's been your pleasure. <laughs> They've worked in and around the wrestling business. They've studied thousands of hours of wrestling, and now they bring to you the greatest legends, Hall of Famers, creative minds, and both current and future stars of pro wrestling. They are Primetime Pod and Chad, the two-man power trip of wrestling. I'm tired of this stuff, this DTA stuff. Oh, no. Don't trust anybody. He's got to go. You know why? What? You better learn to trust somebody right trust now. Uh, no. Trust the trust trust we got no way out. It's either you trust him or you don't. Look at me in the eye. You know I'm. What in the world is no, going on? I know I can trust you. I know I can trust you. I know that you can trust him. I, I know I can trust him too. Look, I'm looking at him. I'm looking at you. Everything's going to be okay. No. That stings like he's talking to DBS. Hey, no. Hey, hey, stay right there. Stay right there. No. Where is he? Where's who? You know who? There's Luger. Stinger. Stinger, what would Stinger be doing with me? Look, Luger, I'm standing out here Where in a the parking lot, running my own. No! That's it. No! That's it. Oh, that's right. Oh, no! Guys. Come on, oh. Dennis. That's right. Oh, we're in bad trouble oh. now. We're in oh. trouble. Oh. 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 No. Oh, you thought you'd never see this. No. I said you can't trust anybody. You can't trust a soul here. And there you see it. Sting standing side by side with the NWO, beating up his partner Lex Luger and getting into that limousine. Uh-oh. It's Sting. It is Sting. Sting's on his way to the ring. Unbelievable. Sickening, sickening, sickening. Unbelievable. Did you ever think you'd see this? Did you ever think you'd see this? Look at this. There yeah. is a scorpion deadlock applied to Luger. By who? By Sting. No, that's not Sting. NWO Sting. They've got their own Sting, I guess. And a front face lock on Luger. Luger's in a bad situation here. Yeah, Luger's in a lot of pain. He could, he's in very, very bad predicament right here. Wait a minute. Here. Nick Patrick said he gave up. 
Mr. Anderson was in there with him right there. I'm telling oh, you now. What does this mean now for I us? cannot believe the NWO has won this war game, Tony. Oh, does This he? war game has ended with the NWO. Those of the war games representing the NWO, Scott Hall, Kevin Nash, Hollywood Hulk Hogan. That's right. Don't even have Sting. And only thing I could think of, had we trusted Sting... Had the wrestlers in the dressing room trusted Sting, we could have won this up. thing. It's too late now. This is the two-man power trip of wrestling, brought to you today and powered by TMPTCon2. This coming May in Richmond, Virginia, the two-man power trip of wrestling embarks on its second pro wrestling autograph and memorabilia convention at the lovely Holiday Inn in Richmond, Virginia. Head on over to tmptofwrestling.com for more information. Join John, myself, the franchise Shane Douglas, our co-host from the Triple Threat Podcast, and Eric Bischoff, and many more guests to come on May 19th, 2018 in Richmond. It's going to be one hell of a ride, and you can join us by heading over to tmptofwrestling.com. And if you didn't know by now, my name is Chad, and of course I'm joined by my tag team partner, the one and only John Paz. And John, you could hear it off the top, as I had to have possibly our longest intro in our show's history, as we had the saga of the NWO Sting. It's completely developing right in front of your eyes as you listen to that clip getting you ready for the start of this show as we welcome in Jeff Farmer, formerly known as Lightning, formerly known as Cobra, and also the NWO Sting. What an awesome catch that we had by getting Jeff Farmer on the show and learning a lot more about a character that at the time was very controversial, but really did lead to the genesis of Steve Borden's career as it changed Sting from a very vibrant, very colorful, and very boisterous Sting into an absolutely comatose Sting Crow gimmick that we would get for basically the remainder of Sting's career, uh, give or take a few times where he started to speak a little more and added a co- little bit of the color back and kind of changed a little bit, but still sticking to the Crow gimmick and it's all because of today's guest jeff farmer as the nwo and hulk hogan and company embarked on kind of playing the mind games with wcw and bringing sting to the nwo in a very very unique way so we kind of get into all the nwo stuff we we dive pretty deep into nwo japan which is a lot of fun if you didn't know about the nwo in japan It's kind of like how the Bullet Club is now. The NWO in Japan was huge. And, of course, when you've got the Great Muda and you've got Masachono on your side and you're in Japan in the late 1990s, you're automatically uh, entering a completely new realm because those guys were about as big as it's going to get in the late 90s in the ring, especially in Japan, as popular as they were. And like I said, very reminiscent of today's Bullet Club and what the kind of frenzy the Bullet Club causes. But the NWO Sting was right in the middle of it. So we get to hear a lot of cool stories about Japan. We get to hear about how WCW really just basically forgot that Jeff Farmer uh, was kind of on their roster. And he was in Japan for so long that the NWO Sting had almost as long a run as that character that the NWO did, period. 
and we get to hear in great detail how it really affected the career of Jeff Farmer, and we get to hear what Jeff Farmer's done since leaving professional wrestling. So, John, I want to welcome you in here now and kind of give us a lowdown on what we have to look forward to in this interview with a guy that I know you were tickled pink to get a hold of as Jeff Farmer will be joining us here very momentarily. But, John, let's get your thoughts on today's interview first. Yes, Chad, back here again at the two-man power trip, and we are rocking and rolling, strutting and strolling, baby, because we have on today a former WCW and, of course, New Japan pro wrestling star, the fake, the imposter, the NWO Sting, a.k.a. Jeff Farmer, and this was an awesome, awesome interview. Just unbelievable stuff came out of this. Always great when you can get on a former NWO guy. Obviously, in the past, we've had on Eric Bischoff. We've had on Sean Waltman, a.k.a. Six. We've had on Vincent. We've had on Buff Bagwell. And now, of course, the NWO Sting. So it's awesome to get on an NWO member. And not only do we talk about his time as the NWO Sting in WCW and New Japan Pro Wrestling, but we also go in through basically his whole WCW run, his start as Lightning, where Thunder and Lightning had a little mini feud with Harlem Heat. We do go, of course, into his run as Cobra, where he had a little feud with Sergeant Craig the Pitbull Pitman. We go into the backstory of Cobra. We go into all things WCW, and of course, that kind of leads us to the NWO Sting, the bogus Sting, the imposter Sting, the fake Sting, what an angle. One of my favorite angles of all time in wrestling. And yes, I've been watching wrestling for over 30 years, and that is one of my favorites. It was just done so perfectly and done so well. And you kind of didn't know the twists and turns and where it was going to go. And we talk about the whole run. We talk about the limo incident where, you know, you hear Sting's voice. Then you see Sting attack Lex Luger. But it wasn't really Sting. It was Jeff Farmer, a.k.a. the NWO Sting. And that was quite a ruse and quite a trick. And obviously one of the high points for me and obviously one of the high points for Jeff as the NWO Sting was Fall Brawl 96, a.k.a. the War Games, WCW versus the NWO. He comes out and we talk about Tony Schiavone's reaction to it and how great it was and how depressed he was. And I just love it. He's like, oh, I knew it. It's Sting. WCW's dead. I mean, it was just perfect by him and just awesomely executed by Jeff, a.k.a. the NWO Sting, and then the real Sting comes out, so it's great stuff. We go all into his favorite moments, his least favorite moments, what he thought could have been, anything that, you know, we kind of missed, he kind of, you know, hits on the points, so it's awesome stuff. We do talk, obviously, about the real Sting, we talk about playing the fake Sting, doing the gimmick, doing all that stuff, but also the fact of who created it, you know, what, what What was the reason behind it? What? Where was it headed? Where should it have been headed? We go through the whole gamut with the NWO Sting. And, of course, we talk about the run in New Japan Pro Wrestling, which was actually quite a run. About five years he wrestled in New Japan, whether it was as the NWO Sting with NWO Japan and all the legends that he worked with over there. We also talk about his time as Super J in New Japan Pro Wrestling as well. And we do briefly touch on his dark matches for the WWE. So we touch on everything from the beginning of his career all the way through the end and through his retirement, excuse me, and his retirement, all the way up to what he's doing today. So sit back, relax, and enjoy a little bit of lightning, a little bit of Cobra, a little bit of Super J, and of course, a little bit of the NWO Sting, a.k.a. Jeff Farmer. That's right. It's a really fun interview with a guy who we didn't really knew talk that much. We never really heard him speak. 
as the fake Sting. But we get to hear Jeff Farmer give us the lowdown on the NWO Sting character and on everything that you mentioned before, Primetime. And, of course, if you want to ask Eric Bischoff about this character, the NWO Sting, and where it came from, you can come to TMPT Con 2 this coming May in Richmond, Virginia. Head over to our website, tmptofwrestling.com, for more information on TMPT Con 2 and to make your plans to join us for what is going to be a very memorable weekend on May 19th, 2018, down there in Richmond, Virginia. Looking forward to that and save those questions for Eric Bischoff for that weekend because we would love to know where the NWO Sting idea came from and just exactly what they were going to do and if they were going to make it to a Sting versus Sting feud, as Jeff Farmer kind of suggests in this interview. So stay tuned and strap in. This is a lot of fun. And we hope you enjoy. So, John, as the music starts to creep in, hit him with a little bit of two-man power trip of wrestling business. And let's get it on over to Jeff Farmer. Now for some TMPT business. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Two Man Power Trip and at Wrestling Pal. Please subscribe to us on YouTube. Also, subscribe to us on iTunes. Please leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Also, while on iTunes, check out the feed for prior legendary episodes featuring the living legend Bruno Sammartino, the late great American Dream Dusty Rose, the Enforcer Arn Anderson, Ray Mysterio Jr., Glenn Kane Jacobs, the phenomenal AJ Styles, lead WWE attorney Jerry McDivitt, and so many others. Also, while you're on the internet, check out ProWrestlingTees.com. Yes, that is ProWrestlingTees.com. They are your superstore for all your wrestling t-shirt needs. Check out our page. Check out Tito Santana, Coco Beware, Kevin Thorne, Buff Bagwell, Magnum TA, and so many others. Also, while you're on the web, check out our website, TMPTofWrestling.com. And if you're on Android, please check us out on Google Play or Player FM. And now, without any further ado, a man formerly known as Lightning and formerly known as Cobra. He's an all-Japan pro wrestling star, a new Japan pro wrestling star, and of course, a former WCW star. You may know him as the NWO Sting, but he is Jeff Farmer. Please enjoy.
Well, joining us on the line tonight is a man who's wrestled all over the world, including All Japan Pro Wrestling and New Japan Pro Wrestling. You might remember him as Lightning. You might remember him as Cobra. But you also remember the NWO Sting, and we are so just absolutely stoked to be welcomed tonight by Jeff Farmer. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, you're welcome. Well, it's very cool to have you on tonight. We do have this little uh, checklist of NWO members, so we will put you on that list and put the check mark uh, next to it. But there's so much about your career that I know we're just going to re- literally ready to dive in deep into. And I know my partner is chomping at the bit to get into your time in New Japan, but you wrestled for so many years, and especially in an era that I think we most remember as the most successful era of professional wrestling. But what's been going on with Jeff Farmer since you retired from professional wrestling? You know, uh, it's it's funny that you, you kind of mentioned that. I actually went back to school, got a master's in public health at the University of Miami, where I live now, and I actually worked for the University of Miami. So, um you know, it was interesting. I, I, I got into wrestling, you know, um, kind of a little bit late, actually. Uh, my, my partner and I, the guy I wrestled with, Clark Haynes, uh, we started out as Thunder and Lightning. And this was back, I want to say, in the, like, late 80s. And uh, we wrestled for a pr- promotion called International Wrestling Federation. Although we never left Florida, so I'm not sure why it was called that. But anyway, it was... Uh, we, we broke in, actually, in Tampa under Steve Kern, um, that school that he had over in Tampa, Florida. A lot of guys came out of that school. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I started early and ended up being in the business for, you know, probably about 12 years um, altogether. So it, it is true. I, I kind of was under the radar some. I've had a few kind of okay gimmicks, so to speak, but, uh, but probably the biggest success I had was uh, – well, NWS thing was was pretty popular, and it was great to be part of that that era and uh, that whole scene. But New Japan, you know, I spent about five years there towards the end of my career, and that's probably where I was. I just think at the time, probably the most polished, you know, point in my wrestling career was the last part I spent with them. Yeah, I mean, the New Japan stuff is unbelievable, and for anybody that's never gone and seen. Uh, not just your stuff in New Japan, but also what the NWO Japan contingent did. I mean, it's some of the more, I think, revolutionary stuff that went on with the NWO uh, during the late 90s. But you mentioned the IWF, and one of the things I think people may or may not know about the IWF is that was the first wrestling federation to actually film at Universal Studios. So that's a little bit of uh, wrestling trivia about the IWF. Yeah, it was great because we did have that venue. So I remember, you know, we did some of the uh, interviews at uh, Universal Studios. We did an interview with Popeye the Sailor Man. You know, it's like some really cool stuff was on there. We had a guy named Eddie Mansfield who was kind of running that at the time. And, uh, you know, he was just lucky to have a place where we could actually do that. And as a matter of fact, our first, like, match that we ever really had, Clark and I, was a televised match. I mean, we were green. We didn't really know anything hardly. I mean, we broke in at Steve's school, but we weren't really, let me just say, TV ready at that point. And our first match we ever had was like a television taping. So kind of jump. we, we kind of got into it quick as far as that goes. Yeah, and also Eddie Mansfield at that point had basically, you know, had kind of uh, ticked off parts of the business because he was a part of the 2020 uh, expose in the mid 80s and really gave away some secrets on uh, on 2020 but also uh, IWF was the home of uh, you know some other TV superstars that were helping get 
the IWF recognized. Like I know Bill Eady was a part of the promotion, and actually, yep. it's funny as enough, John, uh, John will know it very well, but Demolition Blast, John, was also in the IWF with Bill Eady at that hmm. point. Yeah, and uh, um, uh, Rob Van Dam was there. I mean, the Smoking Guns were, were there. You know, we, we did. There was a lot of talent, actually. Uh, Blackjack Mulligan was down there r- helping run the promotion. And we didn't know, I didn't know who Eddie Mansfield was. You know, I had no idea because I really wasn't, you know, I was a football player, and I really wasn't, although I watched wrestling kind of growing up a little bit in Florida, it wasn't, I wasn't like, you know, a big super fan of wrestling. So I had no idea who Eddie Mansfield was when, when I broke into the business, really. And then we started working with him right away. Yeah, when you guys, you go, when you debuted, you guys definitely had a, uh, a pretty unique look. And definitely, you know, when you look at IWF, you look at teams that were around there in the, uh, the early 90s, you definitely helped fit that mold of, uh, of a great tag team. So how did you guys kind of get together uh, and work cohesively uh, put together as a tag team? You know, uh, I met Clark. It's a funny story. We met each other as teenagers in a bodybuilding competition. And I didn't know who he was, and he didn't know who I was. And then later in Orlando, uh, we met again. But um, he was going through a divorce at the time, and, and uh, I was managing a gym. And we kind of got together and, and uh, decided to try it out. We knew Scott Hall from Orlando. You know, I, I didn't know him well, but I knew of him. And, you know, we talked to him briefly about it, I think, at Orange Avenue Gym. And uh, so we went down to Tampa and, uh, you know, to current school and uh, signed up. And it's like the only money we had that we paid to go to school. And I think it was one of those deals where they were trying to kind of, I don't want to say run you off, but, you know, they were kind of hoping we quit and um, kind of not come back. So it was really rough, actually. But I was, you know, a linebacker and, and defensive end. And Clark was a tough kid. And so we kind of actually started getting into it and kind of enjoying the physical side. And then they were like, oh, well, you can't quite <laughs> go a little easier. And, you know, people didn't want to get in the ring with us. And it was kind of funny because we just, you know, we're going along with what we were kind of being taught. And uh, so that's kind of how we kind of started, which kind of worked well later in New Japan because their styles, you know, a lot like what we were kind of starting out with. Right. Yeah, and I mean, like I said, you guys are just, it was an impressive-looking duo. And I think that's something that always kind of uh, separated you, was you had such a great and unique look. And obviously, you know, the physique played a huge part in it, but not too far removed from when you debuted. I mean, really was the time in WCW. And I guess, you know, IWF being in Universal Studios and having actual television tapings and making your debut on TV, it probably set the tone for you to pretty easily kind of transition to a television product like by the time you got to WCW, am I right? Yeah, that's true. Well, we are, are, we really thought our gimmick was more suited for the WWF because we had capes, you know, and so we really thought we were more of a, you know, that kind of thing. But we were kind of shocked that WCW contacted us and we did a tryout match and then, uh, you know, got a contract to go up there and, and go. We went to the power plant, actually, back. In the, and some of the old school guys will know that place. It was, uh, I think it was in Jonesboro, Georgia or wherever the power plant back then and we kind of started there but harlem heat also were just coming in at that time so we had a really good run with harlem heat as a tag team you know stevie ray and booker t and those guys were great and you know we were learning i mean we were down in that camp and we had a lot of great you know senior guys helping us blackjack was there and ole anderson and 
Mike Graham and all the guys who were in WCW that would come down there and work with us. So we had a really good chance to, to you know, tap into some of these veterans and, and kind of learn the craft some. Because, you know, we didn't know. We were just kind of, you know, we, it was so funny because we kind of knew the technique, but we didn't know the psychology you know, of wrestling at all. We just were kind of like going out there and doing maneuvers, you know, and moves. And so it took a long time to really, you know, understand the psychology and the whole business and uh, really putting together a match and understanding a match. And I really didn't get that for years and years. You know, it really wasn't until probably later I was able to really grasp that whole kind of uh, concept completely. So who's the one that kind of set you up on the path to WCW? Because I would think by that point, Kern might have been, I don't know if he was gone from the WWF at that point, uh, but Blackjack obviously being tied to, uh, you know, where you got your start. And then also uh, with WCW at that point, was it Blackjack that kind of helped get you up to the power well, plant? Well, it's, it's kind of a funny story. Actually, Dory Funk was uh, instrumental uh, in getting it started. So Dory... Uh, I think saw us in Florida and Dory was working for all Japan for uh, Baba's group. And he booked us for uh, a tour, a tag team tour um, for all Japan. And at the, almost right after that happened, we signed with, uh, and black Jack Mulligan, of course was, and uh, I love Jack. He was such a great guy. He helped us of course, get up to WCW. And, uh, and we were working at the time. And Oli, I think was the, just getting the book or was a booker back then. And, uh, you know, we said, Hey, we signed a deal with all Japan and we don't want to, we had just got into WCW and he said, no, you guys go ahead, you know, do the tour and then, then come back. And so we did, you know, it was nice that he let us honor that commitment deal that we had made to all Japan. But yeah, Dory, wow, yeah, Dory Funk was, you know, was instrumental in getting us over there to at least all Japan. See, that's pretty cool because, you know, obviously we've heard the opposite is that some people might say, okay, well, if you want your opportunity, it's, uh, it's now or never. And you obviously had the chance to, uh, to honor that commitment, which is great, uh, which I'm sure probably also helped you down the road too. But what was that like getting in there to WCW uh, and kind of catching the landscape at that point because they were obviously in a, in a big transition, uh, you know, in that 93, 94, 95 uh, time span that a lot of stuff was about to change. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's true. We were right at that. I mean, there was a lot of good talent. Some young guys, some huge guys were coming in, you know, physically huge at Ice Train and, and some of the other just big, you know, guys coming in. And, you know, and it was just, uh, it was definitely, it was, you know, I don't know. They were just doing a lot of recruiting, I guess, for talent. I think they were looking for, for talent and they really pushed hard to get a bunch of talent. In, and they really had some you know, some talented guys. And you know, we we went down to the power plant and just had to kind of learn. And Jody Hamilton was down there and uh, Sarge. I don't know if you know Sarge or remember Sarge. A lot of guys in the business know the stories about him. And, uh, you know, so we just kind of went down there and, and, and started working. We weren't, I mean, I wasn't happy really at the, because it was so much conditioning. And, you know, uh, and I'm, and I wanted to learn more about the craft of wrestling, you know. And it was like we spent almost all day doing, you know, conditioning drills. And so I think they were just trying to, I don't know, I guess get us in shape, but I thought we were in shape enough. But it was definitely a learning experience. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you had a couple different personas. You had, obviously, what you went in as with the Thunder and Lightning, and then you obviously transitioned over to Cobra, which is a different uh, different character, kind of a departure from what you came in as. But 
what did you think about that transition to Cobra? He had a backstory. He had a whole, uh, you know, kind of uh, kind of story going on to what brought him to WCW. But what did you think about the Cobra character at that point? Well, you know, I kind of liked it. Well, what happened is we kind of broke up as a tag team. It's a long story. I won't go into all that. But, um, you know, so I kind of came back as a as a single wrestler, right? And I and But I wasn't sure I was even, you know, wanting to continue wrestling. But, you know, I had a lot of support. Diamond Dallas Page was down there at the power plant. He said, you should do it. You know, you definitely have the skills. Because I always thought, you know, Okay, I looked okay, but we weren't. I'm not that impressive, like alone by myself. But when Clark and I were together, you know, I thought that's, you know, a little different, more unique. We, that's kind of an impressive team because it was two of us. Um, you know, because there were a lot of bigger guys than me out there, and you know, guys like Lex had the physique and looked like that. So, you know, I just was kind of doubting whether it was, I was really going to be a draw, so to speak, or what, you know. But but I was encouraged to do it, and I got into it. And I just came up with that character. I just said, you know, what would be something that, you know, I could kind of thought was a little bit unique, you know, this kind of paramilitary, secretive guy, you know, that was, you know, had a you know, beret and had a dog tag and I'd give it to a kid, you know, when I went out there and salute him kind of a thing. So, you know, just one of those things that kind of came up and I thought it would be kind of good. And I decided to kind of approach WCW with it and they liked it. And then, you know, later they had Pittman coming in, Craig Pittman, who was a, Marine, and uh, you know um, he was an actual amateur uh, wrestler, and so they wanted to kind of do an angle there, which we did. But you know, it wasn't shortly after that that Eric contacted me about you know doing the NWSD. Yeah, which obviously you know we're going to definitely get to that in a minute here uh, because I, I have something I'd love to to bring up about it. But yeah, the feud with Craig Pittman. I mean, it was cool that you were able to do that. And I think the Cobra character with just the look and, you know, having the, the Black Beret and just the way you, you kind of brought it, it definitely was different than just the all-American, you know, flag-waving guy. I mean, it, did you feel that you were bringing something a little different than just the traditional, you know, America, you know, fighting yeah, for freedom? I, mean, you know, I, I hate I, the G.I. Joe cliche. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't really want to do a G.I. Joe thing. And it was already done, you know, kind of too. So I was trying to do something. My idea was more like a, special ops, you know, black ops, you know, kind of a thing, you know, that would be a little more interesting. But, you know, I mean, it was just uh, something I tried. And, you know, I thought it had potential, you know. I mean, they could have – but who knows. That was – you know, there, again, that was a time in WCW when, you know, you also had a lot of you – had, we had a big influx from the WWF that were coming in. So you had all these guys that were top guys, you know, now coming in and filling the top part of the – you know, a uh, bit of the company, you know, so, you know, I was, you know, no one knew who I was really, you know, you, we had a whole group of kind of middle guys that were trying to break through and, you know, kind of be stars. And, you know, that's hard to do when, you know, you're getting established stars from the other company coming in and just jumping right in. Right. So it was a, you know, it's a tough time. Uh, a tough time with a huge talent pool. Obviously when WCW can pull off a 60 man, Battle Royal and not really have to dip too far outside of the actual roster. That's pretty, uh, that's pretty damn impressive, but we got to talk about it. So here comes the opportunity uh, that, I, I mean, I got to say from a fan perspective, I mean, really, if you really go to the brass tacks, you, you break it down, I say, and I just was telling this to John earlier, that I feel the climate change in the Monday Night War kind of changed and took off when – 
supposedly Sting got out of the limo on Nitro in the rain and attacked his friend Lex Luger. So if you can, take (laughs) us back to the conversation that led to the birth of the NWO Sting. Yeah, so, you know, uh, Dallas Page was good buddies with Bischoff, I think. And I, and I really, Eric will have to tell you, because I don't know where the concept really started or who came up with it or the whole kind of birth of where that came out of. But I know that they thought that physically I was, you know, similar to Steve in size-wise. I mean, we're, you know, about the same size. I was probably heavier than him, but basically we're about the same kind of general size. So they had to find, I think, someone that they thought could, you know, look the part and, you know, be able to kind of pull off the switch. Because they actually took me in and did prosthetics. I wore contacts. I mean, it was very elaborate. The, you know, they went and did a, a mask, like a plaster mask of, of Steve's face, and they did a plaster mask of my face. And they made, uh, they had a, a guy from FX, his name escapes me right now, but he was a really good um, FX guy that they were using that did the whole um, little prosthetic pieces that went on my eyebrows and forehead and chin, you know, so they made us actually look very similar in the face. Later we dropped that because you couldn't tell, right? With the face paint on, we were, I didn't even use it. But in the beginning I did, so I'd sit in makeup for an hour or so and had to put in contacts and the whole thing. Because I remember when I got out of the limo, that was me when, when that happened, and I attacked Lex, I could, you know, the, I couldn't even see really that good because, <laughs> you know, the contacts, I don't wear contacts, and they're, like, moving around in my eyes, and, um, you know, it's kind of snowy out, and, but, it was, but it was fun. But, yeah, I mean, and, and they told me, and Eric said, look, if this gets out, you know, I'm going to squash it. I'm going to kill the deal. So I didn't say a word, and, I, you know, everybody else that was involved, I guess, didn't really say anything. So it was pretty, you know, kayfabe at the time, even the boys – you know, weren't sure if that was really Sting, right? And I think that was kind of one of the big coups of of the wrestling at that point was, you know, even, you know, it, it was a work button. Even the guys didn't know that that wasn't Sting. So it really, you know, I think went off very well. And, you know, even to this day, I mean, because I wrestled this character in Japan, as I mentioned to you in an email, for years. And, and that character, had they decided to kind of keep it, they could have done, you know, me against Sting, and then have us team up. Imagine two Stings, right, you know, teaming up together against, you know, something. They could have done so much with that. But, you know, it was also, you know, I don't know, like I said, I have no idea who created it or how it came about or if there was, you know, any hard feelings on his part about having kind of a, an alter ego, so to speak. So I don't know the answer to those things. The, uh, the AFX guy was Andre Fritas. Was That's right, Andre. Yeah, yeah, he was a great guy. I really liked Andre. He was super nice. So, like I said, yeah, it was kind of, I feel, I mean, and this is coming to somebody, and I know John did the same thing, that that, that night and the next day we were rewinding the tape, if we recorded Nitro, to see there, it, Sting got out of limo. They played the voice, so they kind of built it up throughout <laughs> the night. Right, And right. i got to tell you, I mean, it's almost like it's apropos or it's very, uh, you know, it's very, you know, uh, parallel to the movie business that the pouring rain that was going on that night added to the betrayal of Lex Luger, added to the turn, uh, and the whole thing, the, the scattering of the guys throughout the parking lot, it just, that night itself, when you guys pulled it off, 
you said you, it was tough to see through the prosthetics, but did you guys feel like you did the right thing when the actual uh, segment had finished? Yeah, you know, you never know sometimes, you know, because you're, you're in it, right? So you don't know, you can't look at it and see. And, you know, you never know. I mean, you kind of watch it back and you're like, oh, you always, you know, maybe pick at things you could have done better or, you know, I could have done this. But, I, yeah, I agree with you. I thought, it, I thought it went off great. You know, it was believable. You know, I worked with Lex after that for years, and I love Lex. You know, he was always fun to work with for me. You know, we, we wrestled many times together. So, you know, it was, it was good. It was uh, definitely successful, and I think Eric was happy, and, you know, the results were – you know, everybody, nobody knew really, so I think it accomplished what they wanted to. Yeah, but you also oh, got to remember, I was, you know, I was, you know, like not a, you know, kind of, I'm just taking orders at that point and, you know, trying to do my best to, to pull this off because I knew it was a big deal. You know, I didn't want to mess it up, but at the same time, you know, I'm just, you know, going along with, with what Hogan, and I think he was the one who was really, you know, had the whole, you know, taking it where he went. I mean, Eric approached me, but I don't know who was kind of masterminding the, the stuff. And I don't, know, I don't know who it was. Could have been Paul or Nash or all three of them. I don't know. Yeah, the, the whole entire thing, I mean, it launched, you know, the quote, the crow sting, because still up to that point he was colorful, he was talking, and he was doing the traditional sting that fans up to 1996 remember so fondly. And for some traditional fans, I mean, we're kind of dying for that sting to, to come back, but it launched – the crow sting, and I'm sure after the first couple of times that you appeared in the more traditional sting garb, you would kind of don the crow face paint as well. But I remember the NWO Nitro specifically, where they did the whole elaborate takeover, and you would come out and wrestle uh, in one of the matches. I mean, what was that like to come out? You came out to the sting music, you had the robe, you had the right. look down right. pat, the move set, it was great. Right. Well, what was that like that <laughs> night during that takeover? You know, it's it was it was fun actually. You know, it was like a really fun time for me. I mean, I had to study Steve's moves, you know, because I, I didn't I didn't wrestle really that way. But you know, I knew he did the splash, and I knew how to do the you know the scorpion, and the woo, and the you know off the rope brain kind of buster thing. So I kind of watched what he did enough. To, but I had never really you know <laughs> really went and practiced it, you know and. I mean, I did maybe down at the power plant or something, wherever I was. I'm sure I went through it a little bit to see, make sure I knew how to do it. But, you know, I was really going off of what I had seen him do. And uh, I was trying to not mock it a little bit, but, you know, you know, it was, you know I was just trying to go along with what I had seen him kind of do. So, but, it was, you know, like I said, it was fun. You know, I knew we were in the, you know, not often you get a chance in the U.S. anyway to be, you know, like the top part of a program, you know. Except, you know, for me, you know, when I was, like I said, not, you know, a top-level guy at that point, and, you know, I mean, really never was in WCW that much, but more in Japan. But, you know, it was a, it was a, it was a thrill. Now, when you're doing, you know, the, the fake sting, if you will, the NWO sting gimmick, how do you think, like, the crowd reaction is? It, like, are you getting the reaction you want to get from the crowd at this point? Well, you know, my reaction was, you know, I wanted them to boo, you know, and to be like, you know, oh, you're a, an imposter, you know, you're a fake, you're, you know, like a, uh, and that that was kind of the response I wanted, you know, when I threw my arms up or did a woo, instead of them cheering, you know, I wanted them to, to boo, you know, and it was funny when I went to Japan because they they knew the difference between Sting and NWO Sting because, I, you know, I started going there and working this character. 
and they they you know they're very smart uh, fans in Japan. You know, some of the best fans in the world, I think, as far as wrestling, because they know everything, and they know and they they were very clearly knew, you know, that this is the NWO version of Sting, and they wanted like they were hoping that him and I would wrestle each other over there. You know, the fans wanted to see that. So, but yeah, I, you know, the idea was to elicit the, you know, the negative response, you know, from the fans, which kind of didn't, <laughs> didn't really work because Japan later, you know, I was with Chono and Muda and, you know, we were doing the NWO and the fans were loving it. You know, they liked the bad guys. So, you know, we were, you know, I was a healing over there. And of course it was a very successful character there. Definitely. And I definitely want to get into your time in Japan, but I just first had to just mention war games 96 because that's kind of what set the whole thing it really in motion after the the limo attack everyone thought sting you know was the bad guy turned on luger then all of a right. sudden shivani tony shivani does a great job selling it too because when you come out at war games he literally sounds like the most depressed guy he's like oh there you go things <laughs> in the nwo it's over yeah do you do you remember you know finally that night because the crowd is kind of shocked you know, too. They're like, yeah, what? that oh. that was you know I have to tell you guys that was probably the most exciting night you know in wrestling for me that you know because I remember it very clearly you know just the pop you know when I came out and then the you know the whole thing you know because it was a big you know it was a big event you know and like you said I think everybody the announcers the referees. The, you know, the TV people in the back. I mean, everybody kind of did a really good job at getting this kind of to work. And, uh, you know, I thought it did. The whole, you know, thing in the ring at the end. And it was, it was uh, you know, to me, that was like really one of the best highlights that I had in, in the business right there that night. I love why I always go back and I always watch war games. I always end up watching that one just because I love, that whole storyline is so good, and, and the crowd buys the hook, line, and sinker. And like you said, the, like Shivani, the announcers were great. The referee was great. So it was really cool to see when Sting actually does come out, and he, then you guys have that confrontation. Was that yep. kind of like a, a surreal, like a cool kind of a culmination at that point? It's like, oh, wow, there's two Stings. Yeah. You know, it was. It, it, like I said, that night was one of my favorite, you know, memories of the whole thing. And, you know, I, but I didn't know where they were going with it, right? You know, that's the other thing. I mean, I'm, I, they're not giving me, you know, uh, direction on where they really want to go. And I don't know that they were sure. I, I, I'm pretty sure I remember Hogan thinking it was going to be like a, a you know, like a very short little thing, right? And, uh, or I don't know if it's Hogan or Bischoff or Hall and Nash, whoever what they were talking about. I don't think they were planning on it being like a recurrent kind of thing at first and then i think they they liked it and they thought hey this could be really good and so they they kind of i think decided to do it more and include it more and the whole thing so you know later they kind of decided to finish it but at one point i think it was something that they were trying to that they liked enough to say hey we should keep this going but again i don't know in the ring that night you know if this is the last you know if this is going to be it, you know, tonight, or if there's going to be a continuation to the story, or, you know, what's going on. One cool thing that I thought of, and when I was watching it, and, and I knew that you know, the, the NWO Sting, quote-unquote, had likes to it, you actually end up getting the win for the team, basically. You and Hogan kind of, you know, you have 
uh, Luger and the Scorpion Death right. Deathlock right. and Hogan kind of choking him out. You kind of get yeah. the win. Is that kind of like a you know a real good thumbs up? It's like wow, I'm actually going over in this match with all these legends. You know, I I didn't think like that at the time. You know, I'm just happy to be in the ring with everybody. You know, and to do my part. So I really wasn't thinking about that part because you know, I mean, it was the gimmick wasn't my win. You know, at, at all. I mean, maybe the team won, but the the point of the match was, you know, much bigger than the actual win, right? You know, because it's establishing all this drama and the scenario and the double crossing and all that. So, you know, but yeah, I mean, it was, like I said, it was exciting and it was really fun to, to be in there with everybody and, and do that. And at that point, it was kind of like, wow, like they're really doing something with Sting here. You know, he's, he's a quote unquote free agent. Then all of a sudden, Paul and Nash keep saying, oh, you had uh, your imposter. We had imposters that were, that were copying us in the WBF. So they're really, really pushing you kind of strong and using you in a main point of the storyline as far as Hall and Nash trying to recruit Sting into the NWO. Right. Yeah, yeah, I think it was, you know. And then, you know, it, it, it's funny because, uh, again, you know, an interesting side note to this, because later they had a – bunch of other imposters really of me almost right i don't know if you remember that mm-hmm. but they yes. had yes. like canyon and other people doing it and the reason why that happened was because it was you know the new japan thing was really on the same heels of what was going on there it was really becoming really popular in new japan at the same time and so what really happened was they said you know we want the nwo stars to come to japan right? Because it was really, you know, heating up there. But, you know, Hogan and Nash and Hall were not going to go, you know, in the middle of a really hot thing to go to Japan. So once this kind of died down even a little bit, they said, well, you know, who can you send us from the NWO? And so it was me and uh, Bagwell and Norton was, Scott Norton was already a superstar, you know, in, in New Japan. So, and he came into the NWO and so they used, you know, brought him over. And so, it was kind of like two things kind of simultaneously happening. And then we came back to the States some, but the, the thing in Japan just kind of took off. And then, you know, sadly, and I wasn't around for the other part that was going on. And then I guess there was some, you know, fallout over who was responsible. And then they did the red and the red NWO and they broke up in teams. And, you know, I really wasn't even around for that whole segment because really at that point I was working full time for new Japan. Well, I was I was in WCW, but you know, as a as a talent for New Japan, so I was over there most of the time. Yeah, it did, it kind of uh, imploded after it expanded. But when you got over to Japan, what was the actual timetable they had for you to be over there? You know, I don't think they had. Again, you know, there wasn't something they were really thinking about. You know, because I don't think I was. Although it was a good story i thought but they I, they weren't thinking about me saying what are we gonna do with farmer we gotta you know they weren't thinking about that they were thinking about their stuff and actually you know i guess they had a lot going on in that group between them like like i said who was responsible for it all was it hogan or was it nash and hall and i, I mean I, and again i really wasn't paying attention at all what was happening in the u.s because i was so focused on doing my job in japan and i literally was almost on every single tour that they had. So I was over there for a month. I'd come home for a little bit, you know, a couple of weeks sometimes or, or whatever. And then I'd be back over there. So it was, you know, I was just so involved in the NWO portion that was going on in new Japan that 
you know, really wasn't really thinking about the States, to be honest with you. So when did you realize that the NWO over in Japan really was starting to, to hit and it really was starting to, you know, I hate to use the NWO pun, but to take over and become such a prominent attraction, really, for New Japan Pro Wrestling? Yeah, it was, a, you know, and I and Scott Norton, you know, is one of my best friends, and that guy, you know, is a beast over there, and he he can tell you we we've talked about this, you know, many times. You know, we we were there. I mean, you had, you know, of course, you had the greats Fujinami and Choshu, and even Masa Saito was he was wrestling at that point, maybe not really. But, you know, it was like all these the you know Muda Chono, you know Tojima, Tenzan, Hashimoto, those guys were all. The top, it was like their whole team got involved with this NWO. So Chumbo came over, and we started doing this whole thing, and, and Muda came over, and it became huge. And the NWO, you know, program actually stayed kind of together in Japan, so it didn't break up because we didn't have any kind of other, you know, faction. We just had the black and white NWO, and, and it was just really became a huge, huge uh uh, success for New Japan. I mean, I, I, it was really one of the most, I mean, we we're selling out arenas, you know, everywhere we went and, and filling everything up. And it was just an amazing ride. And Scott and I talk about it, you know, I was just so thankful, really. I didn't even know at the time, but just to be a part of that and work with these top guys and to just do what we were doing, I just was, you know, grateful to be, you know, I look back on it now and just think, Wow, you know, I was lucky to be just to be in that and be a part of that and and it was it was an amazing ride. And the nice thing about Japan too was there wasn't any politics, you know, for me because I, I you know, it wasn't they just I just went out there and worked. You know, I just my name was on the board, who I was wrestling, who we were working and you just went out there and and worked hard. And that was, you know, it's different. You know, you didn't have to worry about the who's, you know, happy about what and what group is not happy or you know, who's going to get a push in this thing. It was just kind of a, you know, more simplified, hard, harder working, you know, show. And, and we got rewarded for it. I mean, we really, it was, you know, amazing. It was an amazing time. So kind of take us through a typical tour of Japan for you. So you're there for a little bit, you come home, but when you head back, like what do they have on tap for you? Do you have all the places you're going to be going? Do you know what you're going to be working, or is it a kind of? Uh, I know it was different in the states. It was <laughs> that, more flat, nice, more structured. That's a great. It's a great question. It's a great question. You know, and and the beauty of Japan was, and I and I think not a lot of Americans really can survive Japan. You know, because it's hard. I mean, not only is it physically hard, but it's emotionally. You know, you're away from your family or your loved ones, and you're on a bus you know, and you're traveling to town to town and you, we worked almost every night. I mean, this is not anything new to wrestlers in the U S either. I mean, it's the same, you know, kind of schedule, but you know, you're in another country. You don't speak the language. It's hard for you to eat. We, you know, you get out of the shows late at night and you're trying to find a meal and anybody who's spent any time in there knows what we're talking about. But on the other side of the coin, you know, we were treated like rock stars. I mean, we had first class, you know, I cannot say enough good things about the New Japan company and how professional they were and how professional they treated, you know, the wrestlers that were there and the respect that we had both from the office staff, the guys we worked with, and the fans, which was an amazing kind of thing that I don't think you get, you know, all that often. So, but it was, it was a, you know, tough schedule. Different cities every night. You know, we're trying to find time to exercise and work out. And, 
you know, you're traveling on the road. But it was also, you know, uh, again, one of those amazing experiences in your life that you look back on and we're like, Chris Jericho was there with me and all these guys and Benoit came over and Eddie Guerrero and, you know, we had this guys rotating in that had been there working in that company before and we're still coming in, you know, in the guys that group from Mexico and these guys were fabulous. So you're getting a chance to really mix it up and work with different cultures and, you know, different styles of wrestling. The Europeans were coming over and, you know, you, you make great friends there and you learn so much. And it was a, a, an experience that I, you know, very fond of my time that I spent over there in Japan. Yeah, you could tell just by hearing you retell the stories. And I just got to throw it in there. Very uh, ironically, Chris Jericho actually uh, re-debuted there in New Japan today in a surprise I saw uh, I saw it. It was yeah. Kenny. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So kind Chris, of... Chris uh, a good friend of mine. That's very cool. Yeah, kind of oddly timed that we're, uh, we're talking about that. But was there one yeah. guy on New Japan's roster, whether it was in the NWO, like a Scott Norton, like you said, or a Muda or a Chono, that you were just so taken by and getting to work with them as either part of the angle or just in the, uh, the same company? Well, you know, Masa Saido, you know, uh, was the, you know, that was the, the, the booker for us, you know, and that guy, you know, uh, is a legend, and he, you know, and it was just, he, I mean, I made a deal with him with a handshake, you know, he called me over the phone and said, I want you to work for me, and, you know, it just, this doesn't happen, he gave me a handshake, and he honored it, and, you know, it wasn't any kind of, I mean, it's amazing. And he was a mentor for me. Uh, Scott Norton was a huge mentor for me. But, you know, he was on the same – he was on the U.S. side, really. I mean, I, I wouldn't have made it without Scott Norton. He, he was the guy who really took me under his wing and, uh, and showed me how to, how to really wrestle the style that they wanted. Because we were kind of big, you know, the beefy Americans, and they wanted that style. And, you know, I, I – you know, it's kind of taught to take it lighter and work, you know, loose and not be, you know, stiff and, you know, in the U.S. And then we got over there. I, I'll never forget one of the first matches I watched Scott Norton in, in a in like a six-man or eight-man tag. And I was one of them as NWO Sting. And, uh, you know, Scott went out there and just destroyed this some guy. And I'm thinking, man, does this guy owe him some money? Or, you know, is there <laughs> something personal going on? You know, and it was just like a... You know, I, I had not really seen that kind of, you know, display, uh, you know, and it, I mean, it wasn't all, you know, I mean, it was a, some of it was an act, you know, of course, but it was violent and it was, you know, brutal. You know, the guy had blisters on his chest and, and uh, I was like, wow, can you do that? Is this, you know, like, okay, are we going to get in trouble, you know, in the back when we go, you know, go in the locker room? And that's what they wanted. That's what they expected. And that's what they told us. And Masa was just... You know, always in our ear saying, you know, you know, be more strong, be more stiff. And, and so, uh, yeah, Scott, for sure, Norton was the, was the go-to guy for me and how I learned everything, <coughs> excuse me, over there. And, you know, Masa Saido, of course, was, a, was great. And then you learn from Fujinami, you know, he was awesome, and Choshu and all these veterans that, you know, I would watch their matches, you know, watch the guys. Because at first, you know, they didn't trust me to, you know, be up, so I would be, in mid-card or start out lower and you just kind of watch and you see what they're doing and how they're, you know, I was amazed at the style that they were doing. And, you know, I, I, I was a student of it too. So, you know, it was a big learning curve. 
really cool as your popularity rose, and, and I like the way they do it, where you kind of start out in the mid-quarter. They don't trust you too much. They don't give you too much. Then as your popularity grows, they start teaming you up with basically the NWO Japan leader at that point, and Chono. And Chono, obviously, yeah. a, a lot of American fans should know, uh, former NWA world champion, and among, amongst a lot of other things, just a legendary wrestler, obviously, former IWGP yeah. world champion as well. But what was it like team with him? Because at that point, he was one of the most over guys in Japan by far. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's too numerous to count the guys that, you know, when you say who it was. Like, Chono's another one. I mean, I watched Chono. You know, he gave me, he told me what to do, you know, and you're, you, you just, you're in awesome of these guys because they're just, you know, so good at it. You know, and, you know, one of the things that was interesting, you know, when a lot of you make mistakes all the time, right, in wrestling, and, you know, things don't go the way you want, or, you know, you miss something, or slip on a rope. And the amazing thing about these guys is they just, the mistakes didn't look like mistakes because they were so good at their craft that it was just like they could make it covered up and, you know, and almost like they meant it to happen, you know. And that kind of stuff, when you watch that and you're on the apron and you're seeing these guys work and you're seeing, because you know, you know, I know what the, you know, what it's supposed to be happening, right? And then it doesn't happen and you're like, oh, but it's just like, wow, that's a, you know, an amazing recovery kind of a thing, right? So you see these guys do this and it's just, uh, yeah, Chono was, you know, he was so good and, you know, it was, it was just a, an education to sit there on the ring with him for years and watch him and learn from him and you know and it was you know muda everybody all those guys muda obviously one of the most legendary names in japan made a huge name for himself in the u.s as well got to be kind of cool for yourself to go over there as quote-unquote as you know as a gimmick guy but then your popularity grew so much that they pretty much liked you you know i won't say more than the other thing but they were headed towards that territory where they almost like you more than the real thing. That's, that's true. You know, you're absolutely right because, you know, they had this, this rating that they would do in the magazines, right? And they had the gaijings. They had the top gaijings listed, you know, in, in their order of who they wanted. And at one point, you know, uh, when I've been doing it a while, I think I was number three and, and Steve was number five, you know? So they, and you know, it was Vader or somebody was first and, and, and uh, you know, it's like their rating of Americans or gaijings. But, I, you know, they, uh, you know, I mean, they had me higher, but that's because I'm, I'm working there every, every, you know, all the time. So they, they knew me and they, you know, were fans. And, you know, so, yeah. And, and had Sting gone over there, you know, I'm just, you know, we could have torn the house down with the Sting versus Sting. You know, Sting versus NWO Sting would have been, you know, would have been huge. But, you know, I wasn't booking he did get to wrestle some of the best names in, in Japan by oh. far. Even some guys yeah. like that were up and coming, like Kojima, who now oh. would be considered yeah. a huge, huge legend. Oh. You see a guy like him, and you just see like, wow, this guy is nothing but you know raw talent. This guy is going to be great. Are you seeing that with some of the younger Japanese yeah. like guys yeah. like yeah, yeah, yeah. Kojima and you know, Tenzon too? Yeah, yeah. Well, Tenzon and Kojima were actually when I was there, they were already pretty successful. I mean, they weren't like rookies, they were full on, Scott and I used to joke, we called them the mules, because <laughs> these are two guys that just can carry, you know, carry the load, right? They would get out there, and they would just work their ass off, these guys. So at that point, you know, they were younger, 
than us, but they were established stars and they were coming up, you know, and it was funny because Tanahashi actually was a kid and uh, Shibata, I think, I'm not sure I got the name right. These, these guys were real young, like they were young boys coming up. And, uh, you know, we had a match with Tanahashi, I think, one time. And he, you know, was young. And I've I, I watched it. I didn't really watch that many of those tapes. I really would like to at some point. But there was one, Scott and I were wrestling him, and I forget who it was. And, you know, we're just crushing him at the end, like just, you know. And then, uh, but he was so good. I mean, they were, they were, you know, you could tell they were going to be good. And then now I know he's like one of their top guys um, in, in the, in the company. I think he is. I don't know. I don't really pay that much attention, but, um, I saw he had a belt or something. So yeah, those guys were, you know, but they're, you know, the, the great thing about Japan is that they, they really do start you, like you mentioned in the, you, you know, you're cleaning up, you know, you're doing all this stuff until you have to earn your chance to even get in the ring. And then you have to earn and get the respect of everybody to, to do it. You don't just, they don't just put you in, like they do in the States sometimes where you just get a push or you just get something given to you. Believe me, in that company, you have to go up the ranks and you have to earn it. So those guys have paid their dues. Tanahashi, the ace, if you will, the, you know, one of the one in a century talent that he is, that they actually call him over there. He's the IC champ right now. So he's okay. pretty up there. But, but you know, obviously uh, years and years, he was the longest reigning IWGP world champion for a while. So huge, huge name in Japan for many, many years. But some other guys that you work with that if you really just look back and you think about it, it's like a who's who of just huge legendary Japanese names, Tenru, Kensuke yep. Sasaki, and yep. then a guy that might be possibly as, as popular as Muda. And that's Hashimoto. I mean, oh, yeah. are you shocked? Hashimoto and I, shocked? Yeah, Hashimoto and I, you know, I, I loved Hashimoto. I mean, he was, uh, he was stiff, <laughs> but he was a funny guy, like, outside of the ring, right? He was a clown, you know, he liked joking around. And, and that's, that's the other thing that was such a wonderful experience for me, right, is that, you know, uh, we joked around, uh, Kojima and Tenzan and, you know, the whole gang. You know, Hashimoto was, uh, you know, he was a good ribber. He liked to run around and do stuff, and, you know, he was fun, and those guys were fun. I mean, you know, you didn't always like it when you saw his name on next to yours on the match, but because you knew you were going to get kicked and chopped a lot. But um, you know, hmm. him and I had some great matches, I thought. And uh, uh, yeah, I was I was fortunate to work uh, with all those guys at the time. You know, and Tenru. You know, I got some stories about Tenru. Uh, I could tell you about. You know, so it, it just. You know, it was. Uh, you know, as as I, as I said earlier, it was just. One of those things, you know, and I'm just trying to survive and some of it and, you know, learn and do it. And, but then I look back on it and I'm just so thankful that I was, you know, a part of that, that time. Special time. And I got to ask, since you mentioned it, you said you had a good Tenru story. I got to ask, because he's obviously one of the greatest of all time. Yeah, well, the story is kind of one of those. I, I was in that match with Tenru. And uh, I'll tell you this story. So uh, we're doing something and I'm on all fours right? And the next thing, Tenru literally punts me in the face. Like you would go back and punt a football. I mean, I had lace marks on my forehead, right? I mean, right oh in the face. Now, I, I, maybe this was one of his things he did. I don't know. But, you know, I mean, it's like a flash bulb went off, right? I, you know, it kicked right in the face. So 
I jump up. I'm furious. I, I shoot him off the ropes, and you know, and I think I gave him an elbow, but I placed it strategically in his face. You know, normally I would, you know, hit his body, and I was really careful to, you know, try to protect everybody because you, know, you got to work every night. But anyway, so he rolls out and then tags in or something, and and I, you know, and I have a, you know, huge respect, and I don't, I'm a, you know, much younger than Tenru, and you know, he's like a senior guy, but you know, I just kind of flip the switch a little bit. Anyway, so the match goes on, the rest of it, you know, without really any incident. And then, you know, I didn't say anything. He didn't say anything. So the next day, you know, we have, uh, I see our names on this board again. We're wrestling each other, right? And, you know, I got lace marks, big bruise lace marks. He's got, you know, he's showing a little bit from the elbow. And, uh, you know, I, I remember I met with him to kind of go over something, and I was very respectful. And I'm like, Tenrusan, you know, hi, you know, you want to talk about the match? And he says, uh, he goes, hey, he goes, tonight, he said, you know, like, don't elbow me in the face, right? And I said, okay. I said, well, tonight, please don't kick me in the face. And he starts laughing. <laughs> you know, he just started laughing about it. So I, I don't know if he was, you know, doing like a little test or just, you know, I don't know. But, you know, he, and after that, it was so funny because we were like best buddies after that, you know, we're going out having drinks at the bar after and had beers and, you know, I'm, I'm a huge Mark and fan of Tenru, but you know, I didn't, you know, it was weird because when we started out, I think it was the first time I'd wrestled him. He didn't know me. I didn't know him. You know, I'm an American kid over there and you know, he's a you know legend. He came in. I don't think he was working that much at that time because he was, he would just show up for a show every now and then when he wanted to, I guess. And, uh, so that was like our, one of our first encounters. But, yeah, I, I, I really like Tenro. I guess he's trying to see, you know, what you would do, and you really earned his respect, it seems like. I, I think so. You know, he's tough, you know. I mean, he, you know, was a, you know, he looked, he, he'd do those chops, and, you know, he's a tough guy, and he could, he could dish it out, and he could take it, you know, which is part of it. You know, you had to, you know, you had to kind of earn your respect there. And, uh, and I think that's probably what he was doing. But, you know, he could have just said, talk to me about it, <laughs> you know, yeah, like been, said, okay, yeah. look, I respect you. You respect me. Okay. Let's not, we don't have to go out there and try to hurt each other or something. I don't know. But anyway, Tenry was, was a great, uh, was a great guy to, to work with. And, you know, again, he has a different style and I learned a lot from him working with him over the years. You work with so many great wrestlers in Japan. What was it like when you're transitioning kind of away from NWO staying and kind of going away from that, and becoming Super J, which is you know a little yeah. bit of a, of a different gimmick, no face paint, things like that. Yeah, you know the you know we worked NWO actually longer than you know it started fizzling out in the U.S. and we kind of ran it a little bit longer in Japan because you know we had you know worked pretty hard and then Chono decided to do this Team 2000 kind of thing, you know, so we ended up switching from the NWO. I don't know if there's any legal things that we couldn't use it or whatever, but we kind of did Team 2000 and it was all the same guys. And then, you know, they said, oh, you, we, we've got to do some other gimmick and we're going to put you in something. And, and I think we had jumpsuits at one point. I don't know if you ever saw those pictures, some black, you know, yeah. yep. jumpsuits that we had and all that. And then uh, they wanted to do something, I think, simple that the fans could say. So, you know, my name is Jeff, I guess. And they were like, Super J. You can, they'll say that. So, so they did. And then they had a mask. They wanted me to wear a mask at first. And sometimes I wore a mask and sometimes I didn't. And uh, they had a, like a, you know, they wanted to kind of do like a super strong machine or something, one of those kind of characters with me. And, you know, I didn't care. I was like, yeah, I'll do whatever you want. So 
um, you know, they made my outfits and they, you know, I was just, you know, and, and trying to work with them the best I could, but they kind of came up with the super J thing. So, you know, that's what I did for a while. I think that was the last character I did actually. Team 2000 was kind of cool and randomly show up on Nitro. I believe it was some period in, of 99, but was it weird kind of going back to WCW at that point? Because you kind of hadn't been there in a while since you played NWO's thing, maybe about a year or so prior. Yeah, yeah, it's true. It was weird. I was a much better wrestler, you know, at that point. Like, my skill set was so much improved, and my conditioning was, you know, I was, you know, in Japan, you got to be, you know, in shape, you know, because the matches are long and you, and you had to, and we were working hard. So, yeah, I, I was, you know, I felt like I was a better, better condition and a, and a better wrestler for sure. I, I was, I think, smarter about the business and knew more, you know, I think we wrestled with Steiners or somebody, you know, so they, Rick and Scott were, were you know, they went to Japan quite a bit. So they were, they, they knew the style and all that. And, and, and Mike Rotundo, Mike was in the 2000 over there with Team 2000, and Mike's an awesome worker, and he could do it all too. So you know it was fine when you're working with those people, but it it was a different, you know, a little bit different style, you know. And people that would go over to Japan, I think, knew that style and knew how to work it, especially if you're over there a lot. And uh, you know, a little, little bit different than what they were doing in the U.S. But you know, it was, it was a little weird. But uh, again. You know, what I liked about Japan especially was that I didn't have, you know, to answer your question too, you didn't have to really think about, I mean, they, they get, you got on the bus, you know, they kind of had everything planned. They knew that where they were going to go. They knew where you were going to stay. You know, they knew probably where you're going to eat or where you're going to stop and have lunch and where you would have breakfast. So everything was kind of all, all the arrangements and logistics were all done. So you just really didn't have much to worry about, which I'm sure they did to make it easier for, to keep the Americans, you know, together and in line and not lose them or whatever. But that part was, like I said, all taken care of for you. You didn't have to worry about renting a car and making arrangements for a hotel to stay in or any of that. And that was a nice kind of simplistic part of Japan was that you would go there and you didn't have to worry about any of the politics or any of the behind the scenes, you know stuff that was, you know, happening in the U.S. And WCW definitely had a boatload of politics. At that point, <laughs> when you kind of went back, were you under, like, a New Japan contract, or were you under a WCW contract that you uh, owed a date or something? Well, in first, when I started out, and I think it was for about two years, uh, I worked for WCW, and the New Japan office paid WCW for my contract, Right. So basically, I was paid by New Japan, but they paid me. They paid WCW, right? And this was when, and then I think it wasn't too long after that I got a call from. Um, oh, I can't even think of his name right now. Um, it was like one of those kind of white-haired guy that was. Uh, he was uh, doing. He was in the WWF. Oh. Um, Johnny Ace. Uh, no. Older, he was. Uh, I think he was kind of. He wasn't the Booker at that time, but he was in some part of WCW. Um, oh, it'll come to me. Um, I forget his name, but anyway, he gave me a call, and this is when the WCW was, you know, going under, really, right? And it got bought up by WW, you know, E, 
when all that was happening, you know, was around that time. And he, he said, uh, you know, we're going to, you know, you know, we're not renewing your contract or whatever it was. And, uh, I, this is what I remember. Uh, maybe it was before then, um, that time, but, uh, I called Masa and he said, don't go to WWF. Don't go anywhere. He goes, you know, I want you to work for me. We'll keep everything the same. Just promise me you'll, you'll come over here and work. And I said, okay. So at the end I was working just for, for new Japan. I had signed a contract with Masa, you know, in new Japan. So, and that was about another two or three years I worked there for them. Now, as I start to wind it down a bit here, I just was curious of this. Was Japan basically your most favorite place to work? Was that, you know, the high point for you? Well, it's where I had the most success, you know, actually working, right? Um, you know, I was, you know, top of the card most of the nights and, and it was, you know, it, it was just one of those things where you, you worked hard and you kind of felt good about your, what you were doing, right? I mean, the War Games obviously was the probably highest, you know, although we did a Tokyo Dome show that was pretty big too, but um, there was a lot of people at that thing. And that was, uh, I think, the NWO when they came over for that Tokyo Dome show. It was me and six, I think, that were tagged up together in a tag match. But, um, yeah, I mean... Japan was, you know, a better, just a better thing for me, you know, and I, I, I wrestled hundreds of matches there. Um, and so, yeah, most of my, you know, blood, sweat and tears were probably, uh, especially at the end was, was new Japan. And you got to be involved in G1 tournaments and tag leagues and a couple IWGP chances. Was that like, looking back, is that like, wow, you know, this was a, you know, a huge, huge deal to be a part of this thing in Japan when Japan was, you know, they're, they're kind of getting on fire now, but at this point, Japan was on fire hot. Yeah. I mean, possibly yeah. the hottest they've ever been. Yeah. I, I agree with that statement. And I, maybe I'm a little biased because that was part of it, but you know, Scott and I talked about it and I, you know, I don't think they had ever had the kind of, you know, crowds and success they had during that little ride, that little wave that we were on. And, uh, you know, Scott wrote a book, and hopefully he's going to publish it soon. I wrote the forward, you know, in the book for him. And, you know, we've had many discussions about it. You know, it was an amazing time to be, you know, wrestling in another country like that and, and you know, being a part of that huge swell that was this, this promotion at the time. I mean, it was huge, way better than Baba's group. wasn't even, you know, on the same level. I mean, they had a great company in, in all Japan, and, and they've got some great workers over there, and some legends. But, you know, this was just, you know, a whole other level in Japan. And it was, you know, like uh, they treated us like rock stars and the people, and, and it was just a fun time to be, you know, over there doing that. I, I, I told Scott, too, I, you know, I'm definitely planning a trip to go back and, and see, you know, those guys and, and uh, you know, talk to them and especially you know the guys that really had built some you know really good bonds with over there can you believe scott actually wrestled over there uh, relatively i I know it i know i saw it and uh, he's a legend over there i mean that's a guy i mean talk about you know he uh, the stuff i've seen him do i'll tell you a quick story about scott just so you can know this one we're in a match there's a six-man or eight-man tag match uh and this, you know, we, I wrestled with Scott, and it's too numerous to count, you know. I mean, he was 
you know, we, we were tagged. We wrestled, wrestled each other a few times and stuff, but mostly we were tagged up together. And we were, we were, it was just so much fun. But we're in a match, and he did some move, and uh, I could tell he was hurt. And I could tell he, he hurt himself, you know, because, you know, I'm watching, and I know Scott pretty well, and he's kind of hurt. Anyway, he comes back over. He tagged, I don't know who he tagged in. He didn't tag me in, but he tagged somebody in. And uh, he said, Jeff, you know, he said, man, I think I tore my tricep. You know, I said, let me see it. You know, we're on the apron, you know, in the middle of the match, but you know, there's a lot going on, so I can talk to him pretty clearly, you know, freely. And I said, let me see. And I'm looking at it, you know, if you ever watch the tape, you'll see I'm, like, looking at his arm, examining it. I said, I said, no way. I said, if you tore that, it would be so much pain, you know. I said, it would really be, I don't, you know, you'd be in, it'd be killing you, you know. And he said, okay. And uh, and he goes back out, you know, we, I went back in, did my part, and we ended up doing the finish. And uh, we get back in the back, and they go, oh, you tore your tricep. <laughs> and, you know, hmm. it's just like one of those things where, you know, he just went out there and did it even though he had a torn tricep. You know, and was just crazy. You know, I kind of yeah. I just said, no, nah, you you'd be in so much pain. You you know you you know you probably just you know tweaked it. We'll put some ice on in the back after, you know. And uh, but the guy did that, you know, continually. Like worked with him and Hashimoto had a match one time, and Hashimoto kicked him. And he had the biggest hematoma on his leg you could believe. Just you know, huge, you know, hematoma from the kicks, and you know, he's a he was a. He's a battleship out there, that guy. So it doesn't surprise me, to answer your question, that he was back in the ring. Uh, that guy could will himself to do it for sure. Uh, but, uh, you know, I just hope he's healthy and safe, you know, takes care of himself, which he's doing, I'm pretty sure. He looked pretty good, actually. Yes, very good. And as far as you were concerned, I know this is like the, the generic question I'm sure you always get is that you had a great career in Japan, obviously a huge, huge name in WCW as far as the NWO Sting, and really kind of setting off that Crow Sting character. Was there any aspirations ever to join the WWE or the WWF then? Was there any kind of thought about joining up with Yeah, you, you know, I, I did. You know, I, 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 I read after, I think, the WCW, I did do one tryout, and it was just – uh, I you know, did a dark match. I don't know who it was, but, you know, it was like one of those, again, it was, you know, they were like, oh, we're going to, they, they were. I don't know if it was, they were just testing me, like they were saying, okay, we're going to do this. You had 10 minutes and they get ready and they go, now you only got this much minutes. And then they said, well, now we might have this guy go over instead of you go over. And I'm like, you know, it just reminded me of the same, you know, bullshit, you know, kind of a thing. And, uh, it was, it just wasn't a good, you know, I just didn't have a good experience with the whole thing. And, uh, you know, just didn't really, I mean, at, at that point, you know, I was also you know, getting ready to kind of hang it up. You know, I, you know, saw some stuff that made me question whether I should keep going a little bit sometimes, you know, I was friends with Brian Johnston over there and, you know, I don't know if you know his whole story that happened to him and, yes. yeah. and, uh, you know, and I saw, uh, was it Fukuda? I forget one of them. I saw that, you know, he died over there actually from a brain hematoma and I knew that kid, you know, and you just start, you know, asking yourself, I mean, is it, is it worth it? You know, some, and should you be taking this risk? And, you know, I, I was pretty careful to protect myself and I worked out hard with weights and, you know, cardio to make sure, you know, that I could do that. But, 
you know, in, in pro wrestling, it's a dangerous game. And you never know, you know, one wrong move, you know, and you're paralyzed. Or one, you know, one mistake. I mean, I've seen lots of horrific injuries, you know, over the years in professional wrestling. And any wrestler that's done it for a long time, you know, bears the battle scars of that business. And make no mistake about it, it's, uh, it will, it's, you know, it's worse than football, in my opinion, you know, because you don't have the protective gear and you're taking, you know, you're taking risks that you don't take in a, with a helmet on and, and uh, shoulder pads, you know. And, and, you know, I was a football player. I almost played in the NFL. And the, the difference, too, is that in football you can go all out, you know, and, and just lay into somebody. In professional wrestling, you can't do that. You have to use what is a controlled kind of amount of force and a controlled, you know, motion. And a, there's times you have to use a lot of force, but there's other times you have to temper you know, your, your emotion. And it's a different, it's a different thing. And, you know, it's a, it's definitely, you know, the, the, the stuff I've seen is no joke, you know, in that business. And, uh, those guys are, you know, every wrestler out there, you know, is, is taking a risk and, you know, it's, it's no joke. So, you know, anybody who thinks it's fake or, you know, it, believe me, you, you know, until you get in the ring, and until you, you know, go through this stuff, you, you have no idea. It's like someone you watch, you know, figure skate. It looks really beautiful and elegant when you're watching it. And you're like, oh, yeah, it looks so easy. Then you put on a pair of skates and, you, you know, you're wobbling all over the place. So, you know, these guys, you know, professionals, and they make it look easy, but it is not easy. And, and I'm telling you this from, you know, from a, I was very athletic, you know. I ran like a four, five, 40 yard dash and was, you know, in a skilled position. I mean, there's tons of football players that went into pro wrestling. So, you know, but it's no joke. It is a dangerous sport. There's no doubt about it. And if you look back at your career, as far as who you wrestled and you really look at it, it's amazing. It's like a who's who of wrestling. As far as Japan, you know, the Mudas, the Chonos of the yep. world, uh, even Yuji uh, Nagata, but then yep. WCW, I mean, you had a world title shot against the Giant on Nitro, Arn Anderson, Ric Flair, I mean, yeah. Kevin Sullivan. There's so many great wrestlers. Yeah. Do you have a favorite match? Junkyard Dog. Matches? You know, oh, my I, God, I, yes. I, 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 everybody. Ron Simmons, you know, I, I wrestled, you know, that's what I'm saying. I was at a time where, you know, and I was also kind of a utility guy, so I was able to kind of, you know, work a lot of these guys, you know, which was, which is good for me. Um, you know, uh, and there's some great guys, you know, that were in business, Steve Regal and, you know, the Irish guys that were over there, uh, Finley, you know, those guys were phenomenal, uh, to work with. Uh, Eddie Guerrero was always one of my favorites. Uh, Eddie and I worked a few times and, you know, he was just, <laughs> he just got it, you know? And, and of course you, you understand why he does because he's, you know, like third generation or whatever, but, Eddie just, you know, got the whole thing, you know, and uh, it's a guy that Juice was, you know, and Flair is another one, Ric Flair. I mean, he's a legend, but that, you know, you could, I could put a broomstick out there and he could have a match with it. And you'll believe that that broomstick is, you know, a, a worthy opponent. That's how good he is. I was in a match with him one time and he put himself in a hold. And I'm like, oh, okay, you know. And it looked believable. You know, I had him in something. Next thing I know, I got him in an arm bar. And I didn't put him in an arm bar. He put himself in an arm bar. You know, that, that kind of, a guy that's like that, you know, there's not many flares, you know, left. And that's what I'm saying. Those kind of guys that were just, 
they knew the psychology. They knew how to work the audience. They knew the pace. They knew the tempo. They knew when things were slow and they had to pick it up. They knew when things were hot and when they had to take it home. They, all these things, a really seasoned guy like that, you, you, you know, you can't, I don't know, it's hard to teach that. That takes years and that takes working at a level that, you, that you're getting trained in that, you know? And, and uh, you know, I mean, I see some amazing athletes, you know, and you'll see them do some of the maneuvers. I think some of these young guys now are doing some incredible stuff and flips. But, again, that's dangerous, you know, and you make a mistake and, you know, these high-risk maneuvers, and you're not going to be wrestling very long. You're going to be out. But, um, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm also a purist. You know, I, I like the old-school, you know, wrestling. That's what's on the marquee. You know, not watch me jump off a 10-foot building with some barbed wire and a ladder and some, you know, light bulbs and, you know, some tacks. You know, if that's the case, to me, that's not, that's not wrestling. You know, that's, a, that's a, a, a show. You know, it's, a, it's like a stunt. You might as well have stunt, a stunt show, stuntmen doing stuff. And, you know, and I'm not knocking anybody who's doing that to make a living. If you have to do that and that's your, you know, M.O., then, you know, I, I, I wish you the best and, you know, hope you stay safe and don't kill yourself. But, you know, it, it concerns me some of these kids see it and they're like, you know, videos of them jumping off a roof onto a table and they don't know what they're doing. You know, you got you to gotta know how to fall without breaking your neck. And, and we learn that. We, we get to train that. And, you know, you don't jump out of a plane with a parachute and not know how to pull the ripcord and how to land safely on the ground. And, you know, I just I'm worried about that kind of stuff. But. Um, like I said, you know, I, I, you know, I, you know, the old school, you know, the flares and Arn Anderson and all those guys and blackjack Mulligan and those people that I worked with and, you know, learned from, they were, you know, they, they were, they knew the business. No, absolutely. Some great names mentioned and obviously a lot of great stories and, uh, and a lot of cool stuff brought up. So Jeff, this is where we will wrap it up and appreciate going down memory lane, but I got to just throw this last (laughs) little caveat out here. You know, we talked about all the, the great stuff NWO Japan did and we see what you did in WCW, but do you kind of still snicker and laugh at the fact that the WWE puts out a sting DVD two years ago and they include your picture on the back yeah. in a Japanese <laughs> ring thinking that it was, uh, it was Steve Borden. Steve. Yeah, I remember that. Someone showed me that, you know, I, I, I really don't follow it much or watch it much. You know, I, I just haven't been following. I mean, I, I mean, I've, I've seen the little stuff here and there, and I think some of the guys, you know, Daniel Bryan I thought was awesome, you know, and some of those guys that, that were, you know, I really like watching some of those guys. But I just haven't really been, been watching much. But, yeah, someone brought that to my attention, and I saw it. You know, and, and you know, it's okay. I, I mean, I'm, I, I, I have no ill, you know, I, I'm, uh, you know, like I said, lucky and happy to have done what I've done, and I feel good about what I was able to accomplish in the business. And, uh, and, and it's a, it was a good adventure for me. It was a good experience. It just goes to show you that the WWE, uh, publishing staff obviously thought they saw a really jacked picture of Steve Borden and they wanted to include it. So it should be a credit to you that, uh, they, they put that picture very proudly on the back of that DVD and it kind of, uh, it made them look stupid, but it got you, uh, it got you out there and everybody knew it was you instantly. But as we, uh, as we wrap it up here, I mean, I don't know how to kind of present it to you since you're outside of the business. We usually hand it over for plugs, uh, here, but you know, just if you want to give us a, uh, a quick little recap of what you're up to now and, you know, I guess maybe if the fans can see you, 
uh, coming soon and, uh, you know, kind of where you might be in the future. Yeah, yeah, I, I really don't have anything to plug. So, uh, you know, I mean, I, I'm, you know, I'm just uh, happy here in Miami. I do a lot of fishing and, uh, you know, look back upon those times. I mean, I still work out and trying to stay in shape, and, of course, uh, I'll always do that. And uh, But, you know, it was, uh, it was a time, you know, like I said, it was a, a very memorable time for me, and, uh, and I think about it fondly and often. So I appreciate the fans that supported me over the years, especially and the Japanese fans, and, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a fun ride. Thanks for listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling, What the World is Downloading.